Welcome to the U.S. Max Today podcast, produced by the Center for U.S. Mexican Studies at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy. In today's podcast, U.S. Max Fellow and PhD candidate in education at UCLA, Abigail Thornton, discusses deportation from the U.S. and reintegration to the Mexican society in her talk titled, Constructing New Lives in Mexico Post-Deportation. What reintegration means for former residents of the Casa del Migrante in Tijuana. I'm Abby, or you call me Abby Thornton, and I'm a pre-doc here at US Max this year. And my research is focused in Tijuana, Mexico. So if I'm not here, I am there. And uh, the title of my talk today is Learning for Inclusion Through Social Action. Turn Migrant Strategies for Rebuilding Lives in Tijuana, Mexico. So I kind of want to talk about two things to kind of build the context or kind of give uh, some background. And the first thing I'm going to talk about briefly is about mass deportation, deportation into Tijuana and just kind of the changing climate also in Tijuana in recent years, uh, how that has shifted where people are not necessarily leaving Tijuana when they arrive anymore and are starting to settle. At the same time, then I will talk a little bit about the background in education, where I'm coming from at this, why it is that a student of education is uh, doing her research in a shelter, so I'll explain a little bit as well. And then I'll get into what has been happening on the ground. Okay. So some of you have maybe seen some of this data. Uh, this is my only slide actually today discussing uh, deportation. Now, it is important to note that we're talking about actual moments of repatriation. So there can be multiple instances of deportation that occur. But between 2005 and 2016, the total deportations for Mexico was just over 5 million. Into just Baja California, it was almost 2 million. And just Tijuana alone, it was one, almost 1.3. So while we can probably safely say that those are not almost 1.3 million people, we can probably assume that it's it's very high number. Especially, I would suggest or I would put forth that in most recent years, that I think that it's even been the number is more akin to the actual number of bodies because you will notice or we've noticed in Tijuana and in the shelter that just even in the last couple of years, people are not choosing to try to get back across. Back in 2013, 2014, a lot of people, when they were deported, maybe a few days later, you would see in the shelter, they would leave. And then maybe they would come back and they would have been deported back from trying to cross again. But you do not see that anymore it, compared to the way it was just three or four years ago. And so increasingly you see people choosing to settle. So Tijuana seems to have been what I've called the epicenter of deportation in the Americas. Now very recently you've seen more of a shift and the data where you see a lot of deportation in places like Nuevo Laredo and Texas has been getting a lot more people than in previous years, but it tends to go between Tijuana and, or San Isidro Port of Entry or expulsion maybe in this case, or Nuevo Laredo. So at the same time, again, we're seeing this shift happen where people are no longer looking at Tijuana as a space to move from, to get either back to the United States or to their state of origin, which many times people wouldn't even necessarily relate to what that would be. Another piece of data from the Casa Migrante, which I'll get into uh, some details about them in a minute, but the Casa Migrante estimates that about 66% of the people that they have received over the last 10 years lived at least 10 years in the United States. 
And I think that that number is actually very, very small. It's actually quite many more years, as you'll see with some of the people that I'll highlight later, that you're talking about entire lives lived in the United States, not just 10 years. So as we're seeing this shift, and I also want to mention a, a study that was done by the COLEF very recently that highlighted in between 2008 and 2016, the number of people who've chosen to see Tijuana as a place to settle has changed dramatically. Whereas in 2008, 80% said that within the next week or so, they, attempted, they were going to attempt to cross back in the United States. And then in 2016, that number has shifted where it's more like 80% are saying, well, I'm going to stay on this side of the border. So part of the reason for that is also the increased criminalization of people for trying to cross back into the United States. So there is also that, but there's also things that are developing and it's very, very new where people have the opportunity to stay and they don't necessarily have to go find another place to live in the country or try to cross back. So the opportunity cost is, I guess you could say, has shifted. So because of this changing dynamic, I think a unique research opportunity exists to see the development of a new community of, in my case, I'm focusing on people who have been deported and who are staying. And I also want to mention that there's also distinction, many people now discuss between a deportee and a returnee. And so while I would say both of these cases, people are in many ways being forced to be displaced, maybe they're choosing to do it because it's too difficult to stay in the United States and so they choose to return. But in my case, I am working almost exclusively with people who were deported, who were forcibly displaced from the United States and were not allowed to stay. Some of them are voluntary departures, but that's also very complicated because ultimately they did not feel that they had a choice. They were told, you must sign this and you must leave, right? So yeah, the study that I have been working on for the last couple of years is basically focusing on how groups such as the one that you'll, you'll hear about later begin to come together and organize and try to find ways to determine their own ideas about how they can be included in the economy, culturally, in, in the social fabric of society in Tijuana, and also politically in, in terms of their engagement. I don't know why political is like that. Okay, so another part of this picture I want to paint, I have to obviously talk about the Casa Migrante because that is where my work is is situated. Civil society organizations are always the first ones to respond in any of these crises. And so with mass uh, deportation, and I also want to, I forgot to mention this, there was a recent piece of information that came out that in the first six weeks of 2019, there had been 6,000 deportations in the Baja California. And so even if it's not, let's say only half or actually there's only 3,000 actual people, you're still talking about 50 people a day. Mm -hmm arriving across the border with very limited resources. And I would also, I would also argue that ultimately the, the most vulnerable come to places like Casa Migrante, but it turns out now you might be lucky if this is where you end up. Why? Because of what they have developed in the last few years. So they were first founded in 1987. And you know, they historically focused on the needs of migrants moving north. At that time, you had a lot of people coming, mostly from you know, southern central Mexico, through to get to the United States. And so typically, they didn't really have you know, long-term needs, right? Just a couple of days, maybe have a shower, a good you know, hot meal, have a bed to sleep on, and then they would continue forward or continue north. So sometime in the early 2000s, that shifted. And that's when they started seeing mass reversal flows of people being brought back into Tijuana from the United States and over time kind of not really having anywhere to go. When all you've ever known is the United States, 
where, where is home, right? Where is your state of origin that you're told that you're supposed to go back to when you're given your deportation paper and it says you're from Guerrero or you're from Michoacan? A lot of people didn't identify with that. So the closest thing they could think was, I'm just going to stay in Tijuana. So what you've seen is this changing mission, this response on the part of shelters like this one to try to figure out how to help people have opportunities if they choose to stay in Tijuana. So there is this focus now on labor and social reinsertion. This is common language that is used to discuss uh, how are we going to bring our, our connacionales, our, our people, you know, back into society, give them opportunities. And so they started developing these new projects. So just to illustrate how much this has changed, the first time I went to the Casa Migrante was in 2013, and they had a social worker and a lawyer. And that was it, other than the director. A few years later, they started a job placement program. They got a psychologist on staff. And in the last year, they've started a training program to help people get additional skills or maybe get the equivalent of a high school diploma to help them, again, insert uh, more effectively into society. So that is just in the last three or four years, really, that this has happened. So as they have developed opportunities for people to work in the city, you would then increasingly see people choosing to stay. Well, it's a question of were they going to stay anyway, or did the CASA somehow play a role in this? So it's hard to tell with some of this what the real cause and effect is. How is it funded? Uh -huh. This is a Catholic order. They're the Scalabrinian. And so a lot of their funding actually comes from donations. Actually, a very small amount of their funding comes from the government. The local government offers them usually like some chump change basically every year to take care of something, usually some crisis or we, gotta, we have this program, we have to look like we're supporting it. I sound really cynical, don't I? But uh, they always emphasize that the vast majority of their funding comes from donations from outside sources. They are an AC or an Asociación Civil, but they are a Catholic order. The Scalabrinians started in the late 1800s in Italy, Father Scalabrini, and the whole focus of their particular mission is to accompany migrants and to support them in whatever their needs are. So there are Scalabrini Casas all throughout the world. The very first one in Mexico is actually this one. That was founded in 1987. All right, so, so let me talk a little bit about what it means to be a student in education working in a casa. Now, and I always forget to mention that this is a casa of men or a shelter. They are not women and children at this shelter. I'm not working with women and children. I'm working with adult males that are 18 to 72. So there are some distinctions in the literature and education between formal education, which is what people typically think of, you think K through 12, higher education. There's also non-formal education or learning, which has to do maybe with a job training program or maybe an ESL class at a, you know, a local community center or maybe a citizenship class and different courses that you can get these types of trainings in. And then there's this last one that's generally referred to as informal learning, which is the most abstract, the most difficult to define, the most difficult to really understand, and this is of course where I'm interested in focusing. And I'm interested specifically in adult informal learning in groups and how they come together and can, through a process, learn to develop their own knowledge and then what do they do with that, that capital, essentially, that social capital that they develop together collectively. So there is, more recently, also a lot of talk in the literature about this idea of lifelong learning. And so what is the relationship between these experiences of lifelong learning outside of these formal spaces? And how does it relate to social capital, and in particular with migrating or displaced communities? So I'm also using PAR, is everyone familiar? I'm sorry, uh, Participatory Action Research. 
as a learning and research strategy because as you'll see, some of the work that the group I'm working with is doing uh, is its own research on itself and how that impacts their sense of themselves and their sense of themselves as a new community and how that changes them. You're doing okay. it a la Fausborda. You're following the philosophy of Fausborda, the Colombian sociologist. Yeah. Yes. How much time can they be at the Casa del Migrante? Is there a limit? For the residents? Yes. That's a good question, because it relates to how the shelter has been changing the dynamics over the years. So right now, maybe two weeks, which another question about whether or not that's enough time. When I started my research, it was more like six to eight weeks. It changes. And then in the, in the very beginning, in the 80s and 90s, it was three days. So that has been fluid as well. One thing, going back to the CASA and how this ends up being something that can be examined is, so as they've been adapting and developing these new projects, they also developed what I refer to as their new membership structure. They evolved their membership structure. Members were simply residents of the CASA before, but in the last four years, they developed something that first was called the Plan de Comida. That just meant you live outside in the community, but you have another separate uh, membership card that allows you to come and eat. You can also get your hair cut, you can use the computer, you can use the phone. So you basically have access to these other services. And if there's a training program, maybe you can come in for that too. But it was sort of kind of this amorphous, like ill-defined kind of thing, which then later became, do you want to save money in the bank? Because they started a bank about a year and a half ago inside the shelter. So you didn't have to walk around with all of your money anymore. You could actually keep it safe and therefore keep yourself safe from being robbed on the street. There was also the bank program. So they started developing these outside memberships and the group that I work with also now has recently become another one that is another outside group that's allowed to come to the shelter. So because they have a membership of people who are no longer residents, we have our first ability to access people who are settling in the city and find out what's going on with them and what their needs are and what kind of trajectories they have as they're no longer trying to cross back into the United States for the most part. I'm exploring this new model of learning for social civic engagement in specifically displaced communities. So I'm trying to take some of these ideas and apply them to this particular experience. My central research questions are the following, let's read them. What does their process of inclusion in Mexican society look like, specifically as they organize in local groups to advocate for themselves and one another? How is their participation in doing research in their own community influencing their sense of agency and impact on the lives of others who have also been displaced or deported? And third, as they learn to engage in this new context, how does that learning impact their sense of inclusion politically, culturally, and economically in Mexico? And are there really ways to measure these effects? So beginning the research, I told you I arrived in 2013. I didn't start in earnest until 2015. I arrived to do some summer work and decided that I would just stay. So I became a volunteer and didn't really begin my research until a couple of years later. It actually probably worked out because in 2016, I still remember the date, it was May 26, 2016, when literally overnight, many Haitians arrived. And that sent the shelter into a bit of a tailspin because as they were now beginning to develop these programs, helping people transition into life in, in, in Mexico and Tijuana, they suddenly felt like they were going back. We have to go back into crisis mode. We have to help everybody that has arrived. And so a lot of their, their programs got put on hold or kind of pushed back. And at this time, for about six months, uh, you did not see very many people who had been deported coming to the shelter. 
So they essentially, nobody knew where they were, or they disappeared or they went with family, but nobody knew. So in 2017 is when I started beginning my own research, finally. So that's a picture of this really cumbersome survey that I created, which becomes really funny later. It's like five pages. And what I wanted to find out was the following. I wanted to find out what it was like for people once they had left. So all I was doing was talking to people who had already left the shelter. So what was life like for them? What kind of challenges were they having? What things were working, what things weren't working? But I also wanted to know, why do you keep coming back to this casa? What is it that the casa offers you that nothing, no one else or no other space does? And I might have been surprised that I ended up interviewing, in a sense, 30 people. And of those 30 people, of course, all of them said, well, food obviously. They came for food, but surprisingly, they also came because they wanted to meet up with each other. It was the only space that they could go where they could talk to other people like them who had been through the same thing. So I also found at the same time interesting, I don't know if you can see, but there's this little question that says ayuda psicológica right there. And that stands out to me because I asked everybody if they came for psychological help and not a single person said yes. So I thought that was an interesting contrast to, but at the same time, I need, in a sense, the therapy of being around the people like myself who make me feel like I'm somehow rooted here. So this is a sign for a rent, for a house. This comes up, or a cuarto. This comes up later as being relevant. But basically, out of this research and these conversations with you know, these 30 people formally, with my survey, but also just talking to other people who lived outside in the casa, I was really just interested in what they were going through. And through those conversations, seven of them started wanting to come and have platicas. So we started having platicas at the shelter. Regularly, maybe every two weeks or so, uh, then they would come together and just discuss. These are the things that we're dealing with. And there would also be a lot of talk about, we want to do something, but we don't really know what it is we can do. So it was kind of this similar theme every time, of this interest in somehow being engaged, but not knowing what that would look like. Sometimes looking at me, what are we going to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? You know? uh, tell me how to help you, and, and I will. But it seemed, in a sense, uh, this is where the, it becomes a group. And I'm going to get into the group that I work with. But this was the very beginning of the conversation of the idea of a group. Looking back, it was more of an abstract idea and not so much a reality at this time. But uh, they did ultimately name themselves, and they named themselves Puente. And why Puente? I, I, they explained, they all agreed, this is the name we want. And they said, because we are the bridge from the United States, and we've come here to Tijuana, and we can help people who come here after us because we know what it's like. I was like, wow, that's, that's great, right? It sounds really great. They didn't really like, uh, I had a suggestion when they were trying to name themselves. My suggestion was El Grupo de Acción Social, otherwise known as GAS. And they didn't like El GAS. They're like, that's horrible, Abby. You don't know how to name groups. <laughs> All right, fine. I thought it was like GAS to animate you when you get here. They're like, go, just go away. So I was like, all right, Puente. Puente it is. But what is Puente? Okay, Puente. These are some of the people that started mating. And I, these are some of the pictures I had from them. So it consisted, again, of former residents. So nobody that was living in the casa at the time. 
And most, it, all of them lived in the neighborhood surrounding the casa, meaning they could walk there, they would come regularly to eat anyway, so then they're like, hey, let's meet, you know, so it became something like that. So this was about a few months uh, that we continued doing this. And so all six out of the seven that were meeting were deported. Uh, one had not been deported. And I will point out later in the development of the group, not everyone in Puente was <coughs> deported. And this has been a conversation that said, we, we are interested in people who are new to Tijuana. We want to help people who are new to Tijuana. We're all in the same boat. We, you don't have to have been deported to be in the group. You don't have to be a man to be in the group. But for right now, still everyone comes from the Casa Migrante as a, if it is a member. But that was important because they're not really interested. But for my specific research, <coughs> I'm focused on people who are deported. I want to discuss a few of the things because right now I am in the middle of analyzing the beginning of my data, which had to do mostly with this first, you'll see this, the first iteration of Puente. And so see, there's, these are some of the themes that I'm, that I'm finding. So I'm going to highlight some of the members or the founders, as I call them, and some of the things that they said that they were dealing with in the beginning when they first arrived. One thing that I've recently kind of discovered and kind of going through a lot of what they're saying and thinking back and going through my notes of these meetings that they were having that were, for the most part, spontaneous. And there's no real structure, no real understanding of how to make anything move forward, just the desire to do so. But I noticed that there's something very individualized about this first iteration of Puente. And you'll maybe get to see this a little bit later, but maybe I'm kind of jumping the gun by saying it now. But I'm noticing that they were all individuals struggling with individual problems, even though they all have very similar problems. But they did not see it really, they didn't experience it, at least, in this way, uh, in, this in this common cause. Like, we are forged out of this trauma together, and now we are doing something. There wasn't that happening here, right? But there's an impulse, but they were still, I see them as these individuals. So some of these preliminary findings, and I'll discuss them, is this idea of being an American after deportation and how you're treated uh, in society, even though you've also been rejected by the one that just deported you. Being undocumented in your own country. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the fact that this is surprisingly not uncommon, that people essentially don't have any documentation. I don't even know how they proved that they had to be brought back to Mexico, but here they are. They can't, they have no proof that they're Mexican. They can't go back to the United States and it severely limits their options. That also ties in with the lack of social and economic ability, particularly the latter. While jobs have exploded in certain areas like in the maquiladoras and also in the call centers, if you are American enough or speak English well enough, it's still kind of this very low glass ceiling as to how much you can really get from over time. And so also this, this idea of there's no real option but Tijuana. Tijuana is the most Americanized, it's the closest physically to the border. So there's a sense that you're not necessarily that far away. And especially if you have family still on the other side, you wanna stay close. And lastly, the challenge is living outside and then bringing people together to figure out solutions, which gets to the last part. So I'm gonna highlight a few of the founding members from this first iteration of Puente. So the first one is Roman, and he was deported, this is horrible, on February 14th, and on Valentine's Day, 
2017. By the way, they have a knack for deporting on certain. So he lived at the CMT as the Casa Migrante for eight weeks. So this was back when you could stay there for much longer. There were some people who stayed there as long as six months that I had met and talked to. So he is a founding member. This is something that he said in an interview about his idea of himself and his identity. Some people have been here in Tijuana for the majority of their lives. If you were born here and you spent like your whole 20s and 30s here, and then you go back over there, or you go for the first time and you spend a good number of years, maybe 10 to 15 years, and then you come over here, it's like you never really left. But if you've been there in the US since you were a youth, and then you come over here, like I did myself, you feel kind of like an outcast. I'm a dreamer, but I can't get my papers because I was never registered. I came here when I was three months, so honestly, who am I if I am not American? So he was deported when he was 29. At three months old, he was, he was actually born in Tijuana, and then he grew up in uh, Stockton, California. To me, this is kind of difficult to read, but I, I clue this because there's this back and forth. There's over there, over here, where I don't even know where we are. And there is this sense of disorientation and, and where really are we, but I'm no longer there. And he identifies as a dreamer, but on the other side, right? So I've been deported, so it doesn't even matter anymore. But then also this, I can't get my papers. So this is really, again, surprising and very, very important because this is, to, to this day, he is working in a car wash in the neighborhood. And this is very likely a very big reason why. He just simply can't get into the formal economy without his papers. There's, they have looked, the, the shelter actually helps people track down their birth certificates. And there's just simply nothing, they're just, they never had anything. So he didn't really want to push to try. He just kind of, I mean, I don't want to say he gave up, but he kind of did. He didn't want to try to make this, to figure this out. And I contrast this in a few minutes with another member or founding member who had a similar situation, but ended up being able to find his paperwork after over a year and how that changed his life. A second founding member of Puente was Leo, and he was deported on March 19, 2017, and he lived for six weeks at the shelter, and he volunteered regularly in the kitchen, and he was also a member of this group, the El Muro de la Hermandad. I don't know if anyone's familiar with this. There's a local artist, Enrique Chu, who yeah. has this has been working along the original border fence, painting murals on it, and so he became very active at the same time with this group, and we would actually go out there. It's sad it's now gone. Now that we have our third wall, yeah. right? They ripped all this up. So all that work we did that weekend when we went out with them, like people from Puente, and 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 we painted these really awesome murals. Anyway, they're they're now gone, sadly. But this was also another way that he was really being engaged in the community. And so he works at a call center. And so this idea of promoting Americanism at work and the emphasis that they put on that. So he said, last week in my job, I was calling a customer because we're supposed to call customers in the States because it's an American company. And the guy was like, I want to speak to an American. I want to speak to an American. And I was like, well, you are speaking to one, sir. American for me, as far as US citizen, in a way I do feel like one because I live most of my life over there. The lifestyle, the way I live, the way I think, the way I act is from over there. People recognize it here right away. And that's one of the things that can make you feel, kind of feel unwelcome in a way here, right? So he's touching on a couple of things. Just the other day, I was talking to another person that works in a call center, and he told me that not only do you have to sound American, right, and like you're down the street, but if they ask you, you have an address that you have to memorize in downtown Los Angeles to say that this is where you are. 
which <laughs> blows my mind because not only have you kicked somebody out of the country, but you're forcing them to pretend that they're allowed to still be there, that they're still there. So there is a lot of emphasis on this in, in these call centers. And he also talks about this way of feeling unwelcome in Tijuana and this sense of if you are a deportee, there's sort of the stigma or this rejection in this society or like in the city. And that's something that while this is who he is and he, and he embraces that, he feels this kind of tension that the more he is that way or he doesn't adapt to now being in Mexico, that it has caused problems for him and feeling like he is part of society now. So he was deported after 32 years. He was a young child, grew up in the United States. He's actually from South Central LA. I can't tell you how many people from Los Angeles I have met in the last five years that are in Tijuana. Half of Los Angeles is here. That's what it feels like sometimes. So a third member is Martin. So he was deported. You'll notice these are, they have all deported around the same time. March 31st of 2017, lived for eight weeks founding member working at a call center and the uh, unique thing about him or more unique is that he didn't speak any Spanish when he arrived. He was illegally adopted when he was seven from Sinaloa brought to the United States so he did speak Spanish when he was a young kid but then forgot blocked it all out. He says he thinks he blocked it out from the trauma of what happened when he was brought to the U.S. but he even now this is almost two years later his Spanish is very is very limited but luckily he's able to work in a call center speak English you know. So he talks about the dilemma of being undocumented again in Mexico so he was the second person that I was talking about so I don't have my paperwork otherwise I would be working at a legit call center I feel like I'm still left out like everyone has their paperwork and I'm still without mine frustrated with that but I'm happy to have work but I don't reap the same benefits because I don't have I still don't have medical I still don't get credit for my year of work to go for like a house or something um, but I'm still working I haven't given up even though I feel like I want to sometimes so yeah so after 30 years in the United States, he was deported. So this is the last person I'm gonna mention from the, the first founding group from Puente. And this is Marcelo, so again, nice sense of humor. Uh, September 16th, so on Mexican Independence Day, he was deported. Uh, he was 69 years old when he arrived. His 70th birthday was a couple of months later. And he works full-time at, at Maquiladora. And he's been there since since he got there he's been at the same job so for marcelo he talks about building community after the trauma of deportation i really think he said this a lot about this more than anyone else but he also talks about it in a way i'll describe in a minute so he says i just like coming here because i see a lot of you know a lot of me and a lot of people you know i relate to them all of their hurt feelings especially being thrown out having to leave your little kids your car your wife your house you know your loved ones all the good friends you had a good job and I see it, I hear them talking about it, I feel it, you know, like that word empathy, you know? Mentally and physically, I see they're hurting, I see them, you know, angry. Like, I still have it, you know, the anger. I wanna punch the wall, you know, every time I think about what they did to me, you know, how they deported me. He had lived in the US for over 60 years. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that one gets me, but they all do. But he's actually from Brooklyn. You talk to him, you think you're talking to Brooklyn, you're in Brooklyn right now, right? <laughs> he is so Brooklyn. So, you know, he talks about being at the casa because he needs to feel like he's with people that he can connect to and relate to and that have been through this like he has been through this. But at the same time, and this is an include in this same conversation, he talks about it's also something that repels him, 
right? Like he doesn't want to be there because it hurts too much to be around all of it. And that if he's around it too much, it'll pull him down, right? So there's this struggle of I want to be here, but I can only be here so much. I can only touch this so much because I need to remember, but I don't want to take it all the way home with me. It's like it's contagious, like the pain. So, so here are some pictures from some of these early times. Oh yeah, this is before they destroyed the murals. This was actually the one that he was working on, where it's somebody throwing. You can't really tell from yet, but he's down there, Leo's down there, and he's about to throw like a bomb, like, but it's not. It turns into flowers, right? It's off of the, I think, the Banksy. Yeah, yeah it's, he ripped off the Banksy one. And then there's all these birds and stuff. And I don't know why this was a thing that started. You know, at least gas didn't start, but this whole, let's take a picture of all of our feet together in a circle. This became a thing at whenever they get together, let's all put our, get in a circle and take pictures of our feet. These, again, these meetings, and so I just reviewed a few of the founding members and things that they have been saying, because I'm going over that data right now. But this was only for about a few months that this was going on. So this, and what I see now is more like this abstract notion of we want to be this group, we want to do these things, we want to come together, but we don't really know what that looks like. And so by maybe, basically a year ago, by the early last year, I would say Puente was dead. I said, well, the, the dream has died. <laughs> I, I'm just going to, I did my, you know, research or I did some research with them and I'll just take this and, and maybe get something from somewhere else, whatever. I'm thinking about what I'm going to do. I'm still at the shelter, but there's still like one or two guys that keep coming. There was a joke. One guy would come to a meeting and he'd be like, hey, we're here to like hang out and do the platica. And he would say something and then look at an empty chair and he'd say, do you agree? I think, don't you agree with what I just said? Yeah, I think he agrees. And I'm like, okay. Yeah, I get it. I don't know. That clearly, this is, maybe you guys just don't want to, I don't know what you were doing, but maybe there's really nowhere else to go with this. People were moving on, kind of doing their own thing and not really coming anymore. And then I guess something happened, or I tend to think something happened, and it was on March 27th of last year. Actually, another volunteer at the shelter works with students at University of San Diego. And she said, hey, uh, I got to bring a bunch of students uh, this weekend. Is there anybody from Puente who maybe could like talk to them? And I'm like laughing in the back of my head, like, yeah, I don't really think Puente exists anymore, but I don't know, I'll ask them. Okay, so this one that would just always come and talk to the empty chairs, he's like, I want to meet them. I was like, all right, well, go ahead. I'll give you the contact information. And they ended up filming it, and there were 30 students, and here he is eating pizza and like trying to talk to them. And he's saying, he's telling them his story, and then he starts talking about Puente. And he's saying, this is what we're going to do. We're going to help all these people coming here. And, you know, I, I know because I went through it, and now I can help other people. And I'm like, whoa, this is, this is interesting. Like, nobody had done that before, right? And then I was actually in Mexico City. I came back. I met with him again. And then he brought somebody else that he had just said, hey, they should be in Puente. And I said, okay. And they said, you know, we need to organize and we need to have a meeting with a whole bunch of new people and we need to talk about this because this had started to come up a lot more. Housing was a problem. So here is actually Martin, and Martin is actually the one that I'm referring to right now, empty chair talker. And he brought this up uh, relatively early. So talking about this housing crisis, he said, I don't want to leave the neighborhood, but there's no affordable housing over here. Housing is a problem. I'm paying 5,000 something pesos for one cheaper hot apartment. He was upset. And the people around us are paying 2,000 pesos for something bigger and better because they've been there longer. I'm living with five people. So we have a bathroom, a kitchen, a living room with one bedroom. Three people sleep in the bedroom and three people, one sleeps in the kitchen and two of us sleep in the living room. So this was a problem. 
And this was a problem that more people were talking about, and it became a thing where he advertised and said, hey, we're going to have a meeting. We're going to have a meeting on this day, and anyone who cares about this, you should come. And so suddenly, like, 12 people showed up, and I didn't know who they were. They all lived outside, and they were all having similar issues. So basically, something else evolved, and it took a couple of months, but they kind of renamed themselves to, and they became Puente TJ United. Now, some people don't like this name. I don't know. It's not my decision. I have nothing to do with this. They specifically chose this why, because they wanted to show that they are a hybrid, right? They're not just Mexican. They are using U.S. or English words, right? They're Puente, they're TJ, because that's how they refer to Tijuana, and they're united, right? So that's how they wanted to be known. So as of right now, there are approximately 40 members of this group. And I say 40 members. So it started with these seven people who came together to have this conversation, named themselves Puente, said, we want to do something. We don't know what that is. Now it's Puente TG United. And out of these 40 members, there's probably, there's roughly 20 that are actively involved. And then there's this 10 core. And I really have to say, this core group has transformed into something significant. I just thought I'd throw up here. Here's their Facebook page. If you're interested, <laughs> you can go ahead and like it if you are, or just look at it. It's Puente TJ United. There's a picture of a couple of them. They post things here. There's, I'm actually an admin, and there's two of them are running the page. I don't know if I can. So this was a reporter that came to do a story on Puente. If you're interested, you can see it's a couple of minutes. Un grupo de ex residentes de la Casa Migrante Tijuana que ya se han integrado a la sociedad mexicana tras su deportación de Estados Unidos han formado un grupo de apoyo denominado Puente. Puente es una organización para apoyar a los deportados que han salido ya de casa del inmigrante, sobre todo para reconocer que como personas deportadas tenemos derechos de alquiler una vivienda. Además de que conozcan que tenemos otros derechos, es importante compartir esta información en las reuniones que aquí tenemos. He is uncomfortable speaking Dos veces por semana en la misma casa migrante de Tijuana. 
Todos los días son deportados decenas de migrantes por esta frontera. Llegan sin saber qué les deparará el destino, pero ahora gracias al programa Puente podrán encontrar una mano detrás de otro migrante. Alberto Elena, Cispan TV, Tijuana, México. Ok. So that was... Uh... Very random, our first foray into media, and very, it was, they learned a lot of, okay, because there were little moments there of things like a hundred people they had served, or they meet twice a week, like, wait, 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 oh, they got that wrong, or that's not what I said, and so it was funny, it was good, it was good exposure for them, and a good opportunity for them to see, uh, you know, kind of see that, like, they could make an impact, they could do something, and that people were paying attention to it, so I think that was first, that was like last fall. And so here are some of the projects I just want to quickly highlight that they've been working on uh, in the last several months. So the raffle was mentioned actually in, in that little bit right there for a member. It was actually one of the founding members who ended up coming back into the group who basically got robbed by the police, you know, was on his way home from work and they shook him down. And so they just des decided, you know, we can take a stand here to make talk about that this is a problem that this happens a lot, that we have this abuse and this harassment by the police. So we can raise awareness about that and help our member. So there was a raffle, different people donated, actually from Chicago, Washington DC, like people we knew, they donated things that people needed that were settling, and that was very important too. Like, so it became a microwave, a mini refrigerator, right, stove. So to also point out that people needed things because they were moving out of the casa into an empty room. And if you're not making any money, how can you then, it takes a month to buy a, a mattress, maybe another couple of months to buy something to, to cook food on. So it was really important for them to kind of raise awareness about that. Housing assistance, so this is, sorry, it's not the best quality picture, but this is a picture of the board uh, that they now are allowed to have at the Casa Migrante that they post information about housing on this board and where you could go to find rent or if you need help. So this is something that came out, again, of this issue that they identified that that was a problem they wanted to help others with. This talks at shelter with current residents is a, is a very new thing that CASA asked the group if they would be willing to talk, have an official regular weekly talk with the new people in, that are residents in the CASA that are new to Tijuana to talk about where are you going to find housing? What, where can you find work? So really just kind of help educate them so they could better acclimate or more rapidly into, into, into Tijuana. And some of that ties into the last thing here is the survey project. So that's a really weird picture they made of all the surveys that they have been able to do. So remember back in a slide, many slides ago, I had this really cumbersome five-page survey. You couldn't really see that, but that was my, of course, academic survey. Hey, I want to ask you all these things. Well, they saw that, right? I mean, they knew that I had done that, so I feel like I must have influenced them, and then the conversations I would talk about surveys are, are a really good way to find out more about your community, and then you can help support each other. They're like, we want to have a survey, but not like yours. <laughs> so actually, I will pass a few of them around really quickly if you want to take a look. Sure. I brought three surveys uh, that they made, so... Uh, but they wanted to find out what people were dealing with in terms of housing and work. So it was asking where and where people live and where are people working and how much money are you making? Are you getting any money from anyone in the U.S.? Has your landlord asked you if you get U.S. dollars? Because that was one of the big issues with housing, that people were trying to charge them in dollars. And you would actually have people go to work, get their paycheck and pesos, have to go to the Casa de Cambio, change it to dollars to pay their landlord. It's ridiculous. Uh, so... They started this project, got just over 50 surveys, met with the head of the shelter to present the findings. The father said, this is amazing, nobody has this information, but any chance you can get 200? 
So that actually I heard last night happened. As of late last night, I got a message. We got to 200. So after I think it was about seven months, they were able to do this. And so the idea is that they're actually going to be part of the anniversary. There's a, every year the shelter has this huge anniversary party. And they announce everything that they're working on and everything they've accomplished. And they're going to include Puente to do their own, like, these are our survey results and this is what we found about the community. So that's like a huge thing for them. And they're really excited because they did it and now they're going to be like part of this big event. So they feel really like important now. How are you? So basically I'm, I am looking at all the different levels of this. Uh, individual group community I highlighted mostly the individual stuff because that's where I'm at right now and looking at these different ways that these different factors or themes interact with each other and how they have learned to not only adapt but engage in their community in Tijuana and this is basically what I'm working with through their action in community in Puente how that experience of learning transforms them and then promotes further social action to have a larger impact in their community, which ultimately could lead to their inclusion and engagement in larger society. So that's it. That's what I've been doing. Thank you for listening to the U.S. Mex Today podcast. The Center for U.S. Mexican Studies at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy contributes to the ongoing integration process between U.S. and Mexico by providing a forum of thought leaders to engage in public dialogue and training. The Center supports a vibrant community of innovative scholars and practitioners who undertake cutting-edge research to guide policy decisions. For more information about the center, visit usmex.ucsd.edu and or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Till next time.